Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato, and with me today, I have Patrick Bixby, who is the author of the book License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. We're definitely going to divert a little bit from our traditional media comm studies um, and do a three-part series with Patrick, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, So welcome, Patrick, and thank you for joining us um, to talk about uh, this really exciting book. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Um, So to start, um, I kind of want to just give our listeners um, some context that Patrick actually used to be Dr. Bixby to me (laughs) almost 15 years ago now when I was uh, a student at uh, Arizona State University West Campus when I was doing a master's in interdisciplinary studies. So it's so I'm I'm very honored to like be having a conversation with you uh, this many years later as a as a fellow academic. So it's kind of uh, exciting for me. Well, um, I should to, say it's to, very to gratifying for me to have a student who's been so successful and, and has uh, given me this opportunity to, to have this conversation. So it's, it's a nice uh, full circle moment. It is. It really is. Because um, I remember taking your class, which I think was probably like 20th century thought, something related to modernist thought. I'm pretty sure that's the class I yeah, took yeah, with you. Was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and I just, you know, and, and to think about just how... Uh, just young my brain was at that time, you know, and how much I've learned. And so definitely your, your class was, was certainly um, life-changing to me to be like, wow, I really need to read more. I need to research more, um, which I certainly did as I moved from ASU onto UCF, which is where I did my PhD. So, um, so I really appreciate um, a lot of the conversations that we had in that seminar class. Um, so to kind of start, uh, this, first of all, I really, really loved this book. Um, ironically, I actually am working on a project that relates to immigration, particularly in the El Paso border. So this was like really a treat for me to read. Um, so can you tell our listeners kind of what inspired you originally to dive into this topic about the history of the passport? Well, there were a number of things. Uh, I suppose that the best projects, maybe the only projects I can do are at the convergence of a number of different motives. It has to be uh, that forceful to get me to <laughs> commit the time and the energy to, to write an entire book. So, um, of course, I, I had my own experiences with passports. I've traveled internationally for 30-something years now. Um, and they've meant a lot to me during that period, you know, access to other places, other cultures, other peoples, to experiences and relationships that I've, I've treasured over the years. And of course, passports record those experiences uh, in a particular way through the, the stamps and visas that they collect in their pages. Um, and then there have been this sort of anxious moments during my travels that involve the passport. Uh, going from, for instance, uh, Hong Kong to mainland China and getting a few extra questions at the border control or being on a bus in in the jungles of Ecuador and having it boarded by soldiers demanding passports from the passengers. Um, And even those sort of familiar routines at customs and immigration sometimes be a little bit anxious, uh, you know, if the officer inspects your passport a little more closely than you had anticipated. So, those kinds of dramas, tensions, anxieties, emotions uh, were interesting to me um, because they're attached to this little book, which is sort of innocuous in other ways. Um, And then as a professor of English, my uh, field of specialty is is modernist studies. So I'm interested in, you know, folks like James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Langston Hughes, Gertrude Stein, Virginia Woolf, who were amongst the first generation of uh, artists and writers to travel under our current passport regime. So the, you know, the modern passport regime, as we know it, emerged out of the First World War as a sort of an extension of the state of emergency brought about by the war. 
And these documents, of course, are deeply embedded in the bureaucratic functioning of the state. But what I came to found, find from the, the writings on passwords and also looking at the documents themselves when they're available from these figures is that they record a lot about the sort of personal ties and intimate relationships of these figures as well. So um, in the end, the book expanded well beyond the scope that I had initially intended. In fact, I go all the way back to early uh, documents in ancient Egypt some 3,500 years ago, uh, clay tablets inscribed with cuneiform uh, language and uh, trace the history of travel documentation all the way to the present through any number of important cultural figures you know, from Ramses II in ancient Egypt to folks like Marco Polo, Shakespeare, Herman Melville, Frederick Douglass, etc. cetera. Um, but also looking at the way that passports were uh, depicted in film, in literature, in the visual arts. So it is really a, a cultural history, which is my area of interest. And you, you alluded to the, the interdisciplinary program that we were both Part of, and I, I learned a lot from teaching that class that you referred to. And this this is um, my best effort at a, a truly interdisciplinary project. It it ranges across different artistic disciplines, of course, but across history, politics, cultural studies, any number of fields, which all converge around the passport. And it was that convergence again that you know, made this. A project interesting enough for me to dedicate the time to, and I hope interesting enough for, for folks to, to be interested in uh, after I completed it. And so far, that seems to be the case. I'm, I'm really pleased with the reception so far. Yeah, it really is. Um, diving into it, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect. So you you did really make it accessible and interesting and, and really interdisciplinary, which, of course, sharing that background with you is, is, um, it's not an easy task. And, it, and it's really interesting, I think, to be able to bring all those um, different perspectives together to really show really the complexity of the history of the passport, going back a long ways in, in history. So so that's definitely, I think you did a really good job doing that. Um, and in terms, I think for for me, like I am the daughter of immigrants, so I've I've had a passport since I was a baby. I was born in the U.S., but I also have a Brazilian, so I'm a dual citizen mm-hmm. with the United States and Brazil. So just everything about immigration and borders and passing through these, you know, state surveillance lines and those kinds of things, um, and obviously living in the Southwest for many years as I have, that's just became really a big part of my life. You start the book in the introduction talking about the most precious book I possess, which I think in some ways, like that's kind of what I was taught, you know, like this Mm -hmm. is something that you really, really need to cherish. So um, I I will admit that I get a little bit, um, whenever I have to like send my passport to be renewed, I get a little freaked out not having it in my possession um, because it's, you know, we've, we have been told that it's this really like without that year or nobody, according to the state. Right. Um, and you delve into that, you start talking about that and you start um, talking about, uh, Rushdie and, um, and, uh, step across this line. Can you dive a little bit more into how you started with Rushdie's experience and, um, both personal and professional and, and opening up this idea of, the passport. Well, it's from him that I derive that line, the most precious book that I possess. That's a line that comes from that collection of essays you referred to, Step Across This Line. Um, and you know, things have changed rather dramatically since I finished writing the book because the, the fatwa was carried out unsuccessfully, thank goodness, uh, against Rushdie. Um, but he had been in the U.S. for a long time, of course, having uh, migrated from India around um, you know the time of his early youth to England, where he was uh, largely educate, educated and conducted his professional life, and then on to the U.S., where he's had academic posts and has um, you know conducted the, the latter part of his career. So he's someone whose personal experience with passports is rather remarkable, and uh, someone who writes about that experience and. In, in, penetrating and articulate ways. And be, because his experience is so 
sort of exemplary of uh, the different kinds of challenges and emotions and sort of spurs to the imagination that are associated with the passport provided me a handy way to introduce those themes into the book. You know, his first passport was uh, Anglo-Indian passport, which had a list of the countries that he could visit inscribed in its pages. And for him, it was a depressingly short list. And then um, when he eventually attained a British passport, uh, the world kind of opened up to him. So he experienced this sort of um, emotional response to that opening up uh, in a dramatic way. And of course, his career has been a very much a global one um, with uh, cultural connections uh, across uh, continents and being under threat of, of uh, assassination from a nation you know, halfway across the world from where he resided and so forth. So um, he, he was also a figure who has reflected on the passports of others and so forth. So, uh, and in his fiction, his characters are um, from time to time embedded in these uh, challenges around migration and the role that the passport plays in his books is not inconsequential either. So there, there was a lot of fodder there. He's also a, a recognizable figure. And I wanted my readers to have a kind of handhold entering into the book because it does range so widely. Um, the opening chapter uh, addresses figures that may be a little bit more familiar to uh, American readers, uh, Anglophone readers more broadly, um, Rushdie being one of the most prominent figures in Anglophone literature in the last half century or so. It seemed like a nice place to begin as well. And continuing on with his notion of the most precious book I possess that you just mentioned that that was really the, a great way to, to introduce your readers into what you're talking about. You also start um, talking about Hollywood and the kind of the cinematic representation of border control rituals. Um, and you start discussing the Marx Brothers, uh, I think, third feature in 1931, Monkey business um, and then talk about Argo and Midnight Express. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the the kind of those cinematic representations in terms of um, the passport border ritual, as you mentioned in the book? Well, they, they do run a kind of gamut. The, the first instance that you mentioned from the Marx Brothers film Monkey Business, um, 1931 film. So, if, you know, less than a decade after passport regulations had been regularized and, and universalized. And uh, towards the end of that film, the brothers are disembarking from an ocean liner in New York City, but they don't have passports. So they uh, go through a whole set of uh, ruses in order to try to exit the boat. Uh, and it becomes a kind of chaotic response to the very sort of staid and organized ritual of passport control. It ends with Harpo uh, attacking one of the, the border guards, essentially flipping off his hat and using the visa stamp to imprint his bald head. So um, I read that as uh, an indication of the, the sort of frustration and even anxiety associated with that ritual a decade into its uh, widespread uh, existence. And then, you know, these later examples are uh, interesting because they're, they're often representing uh, Americans abroad uh, experiencing some kind of peril, which we might read as a kind of xenophobic response to international travel, particularly in the Middle East with uh, Midnight Express and, and Argo. Um, but one of the things that becomes clear, and this is uh, clear in, in subsequent films like uh, the Bourne, uh, Jason Bourne films, for instance, that the passport uh, control ritual. I, I call it a ritual because it is a kind of uh, repeated set of movements or motions that we have to go through every time we come to a border and seek to cross it. Um, those films suggest just how much anxiety, how much drama is associated with that ritual it becomes a kind of handy plot point in these films to ratchet up the intensity of the story and to ratchet up the response of the audience, um, which is kind of a funny thing that this bureaucratic 
ritual would become such a sort of dramatic scene. But we, we, we experienced that ourselves, I think, uh, every time we cross where you talked about your passport a bit, Marcy. Um, I'm fortunate enough to possess a U.S. passport, which is one of the stronger passports globally, according to any number of indexes. Um, but I still get a little bit of uh, anxiety when you know you come up to the officer, you're in this very regulated space of the airport or the border crossing, and you're requesting passage by presenting that document. They're going to ask you questions, um, and you're going to try to answer as, as plainly and directly as possible as not to cause any confusion or to uh, find yourself waylaid in any manner. So uh, the, the films sort of track the, the rise in that anxiety in some sense as that ritual becomes more and more familiar to more and more travelers. It becomes part of our sort of popular cultural lexicon by the end of the 20th century. And as you mentioned in the book, you then move into really looking at the prehistory of what we now know as the modern passport, um, going back to talk about, you know, ancient Greece. Um, so can you, can you kind of um, go through that prehistory and that context in terms of, because you talk about Shakespeare as well, um, and what is that? Because it, you know, there's it's multi-layered and complex, and we don't often, I don't think, think about the passport or those kinds of ideas going back that far. But as you lay out in the book, they really do um, in relation to how borders and states have been kind of created and controlled, um, and even the idea of, you know, God wanting to build walls and, and things like that, right? Um, yeah, this is what I with commentators, yeah me a bit as I got further into the research is just how far back the history goes. I mean, there are documents associated with travel, usually for couriers or messengers dating all the way back to about 3,500 years ago, about the 14th century BCE in Egypt. And then, you know, the, these documents serve a, a variety of functions in that intervening period between then and now, they might be used to send a soldier home for war. They might be used to ease the travel of, of a grand tourist, so-called moving through Europe and engaging in various kinds of cultural exchange. They might be used to affirm the citizenship of an enslaved person. And of course, then to protect the borders of the nation state and so forth. But in those earliest instances in ancient Egypt, uh, you have uh, clay tablets that are referred to before that are used by couriers sent out by their sovereigns to do what amounted to international relations, diplomatic work between different sovereigns in the region who were um, attempting to protect their messengers and to ensure the success of their diplomatic work by giving them these tablets that essentially contained a threat and the, one of the remarkable things is that those threats are not unlike the language you find in a contemporary U.S. passport, which you know, contains a kind of demand from the Secretary of State that anyone who uh, is presented with this passport not delay or provide hindrance to the holder of the passport. Such was the case some 3,500 years ago with these clay tablets. And um, since then, there's... Um, been any number of other instances. You referred to the biblical uh, instance from the book of Nehemiah. That's a, a particularly interesting one, for one, because it's often associated with the beginning of the passport in other histories and uh, journalistic work and so forth, uh, because uh, it's a prominent instance of this kind of thing. Now, what happens in the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah gets news that uh, things have gone horribly wrong back home. He's been working for King Artaxerxes uh, of Persia, and he wants to return to Judea in order to uh, assist his people there. But in order to make that transit, he's going to need uh, this document. And what's particularly remarkable about the way that this story is rendered in the Old Testament is that that document is... Um, requested after a series of prayers from Nehemiah. And 
it's requested in lieu of asking God directly for safe passage or aid in his journey home. So he prays for the king to grant him this document. And then perhaps even more remarkable, when he receives it, he is um, overjoyed, overwhelmed with gratitude to God for having received this piece of paper, this letter, which will guide him back to his homeland so that he can do the work that he requires to do there. So um, there's other instances in ancient Greece and elsewhere um, that we could refer to, but this history goes uh, around the globe and into the depths of history in ways that I hadn't suspected when I began working on the project. And then you actually kind of move in and and talk about um, Shakespeare and even looking at um, Henry V and looking at how he's written certain things in there and um, and the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And a lot of the symbolism and these ideas were also present during that time, both in fiction and in reality. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Marcy. Can, can in history. So the, the example in, in Shakespeare is particularly interesting because it has all sorts of different forms of significance. Um, it comes from the famous St. Crispin's Day speech in Henry V, where uh, the soldiers are gathered and the suggestion has been made that they, they need more troops to reinforce their efforts Henry's troops are in France, uh, engaged in a, in a conflict with the French sovereign. And um, you know, the gist of the speech is that uh, he, being Henry, would rather not share the uh, glory with more men, um, but rather um, keep the glory to the few, to the brave. Uh, these are paraphrases of those famous lines from Henry V. And uh, if anyone doesn't want to participate in the effort they are now engaged in, well, then they can go back to England. And the way that he makes that invitation or a bit of a threat even to the gathered soldiers is that he will provide them with a passport. So the the word passport is used, uh, but that's a bit of an anachronism. uh, And this is one of Shakespeare's history plays, takes place nearly 200 years before Shakespeare was writing it. Um, And the word passport didn't exist in the English language in the time of Henry V. In fact, it didn't emerge in the French until a few years later, uh, after the events of the Battle of Agincourt, which are included or depicted in the play. play. So um, the use of the word, because of its anachronistic quality, becomes particularly Interesting, why has Shakespeare put that word in the mouth of Henry V? Well, the passport as it had emerged by the time that Shakespeare was writing was a tool of sovereign power in both France and England. It was something that could be used by the English sovereign to eject people from the kingdom if they had offended the crown in some way. It was something that could be used, again, for diplomatic purposes, the king or Queen, as was the case in the time of Shakespeare with Elizabeth I, could send couriers, messengers, diplomats over to France or elsewhere in Europe using passports. So uh, the document was a means of exercising the power of the sovereign. And in Shakespeare's depiction of Henry V, then, one way to, to demonstrate his authority, to demonstrate his abilities as a kind of charismatic ruler was to give him this particular tool for exercising his authority in the passport. So there's a kind of linguistic history in there and the emergence of the word into French and then into the English language. There's also a sort of history of thinking about sovereignty, the divine right of kings um, during that crucial period in English history, and some indication also of of Shakespeare's take on the matter. And it's all sort of lodged in the use of that one term, passport. And then you, we kind of, in the next chapter, we get into what the passport has evolved into 
you know, uh, what you mentioned as a means to establish the identity of travelers that are passing through, um, passing across territorial boundaries, which is really what it does now. Um, and of course, not not unsurprisingly, you mentioned uh, Michel Foucault and how he calls the quote, the field of documentation, which transcribed um, bodies into a, a network of writing that really recorded this information and allowed the mechanisms of the state control to operate on them. How do you think, I mean, that's that's certainly what's happening now, right? In, in how we look at um, the passport, because it, it, it shifted from just being somewhat symbolic to being part of uh, a system of control. Right. So by the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, the, the modern passport regime, um, something akin to the one that we know today, begins to emerge um, in one of the, the mechanisms that is employed um, during the, the early days of the modern passport is the document becomes an identification document. It lists certain personal details about the holder. Now, there, there are earlier instances of, of this that go all the way back to ancient China, but they're crucial to the function of the document in the modern age. Um, and they were then used to, as it were, register the user, register their whereabouts, register whether or not they belonged to a particular country and in a particular country at the time that they were traveling. And these were all means uh, to uh, begin to confirm the status of the nation state, the sovereign nation state. So for John Torpy, for instance, who's written a wonderful book called The Invention of the Passport, he links the passport with the birth of the modern nation state as one of the sort of signal features of stateness uh, during the modern period, because it was a means for population control, for immigration and emigration control that began uh, simultaneously with the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and so forth. And through the course of the following century were means to confirm the sovereign status of nations in the international community. So that's one of the key sort of political science insights into the passport is that it's so closely linked with these uh, important transformations that are associated with the modern nation state. And unsurprisingly, then you we kind of go into the different experiences that certain people had. For example, how it was relatively easy for Herman Melville to get documentation proving his citizenship versus Frederick Douglass, which uh, so it, it's just kind of this idea of, you know, gender politics and race politics was almost already embedded in the idea of the passport and the symbol of the passport long before the kind of modern passport that you were process that you just mentioned. Um, can you talk more about that kind of difference of what was really happening in the politics of why someone like Melville was able to get it so easily versus Frederick Douglass. Well, and, and that's a particularly telling contrast. I think there's a lot of important work in the book. So Melville, um, in the story that I tell, was about to set off to England with the proofs of his latest novel, which at the time was White Jacket. This is in 1849. And while a passport wasn't an absolute requirement for international travel. It certainly eased the way for travelers and it could allow them uh, access to cultural institutions, to diplomatic functions, to other kinds of uh, spaces and opportunities once they did uh, travel into new lands. So Melville saw this as, uh, if not a necessity, at least an opportunity for him to, to ease his way on his journey. But the funny thing is that he didn't apply for his passport until about a week before he was set to sail. I mean, we couldn't imagine doing such a thing today. Um, but because of the relatively few passports that were being issued in the middle of the 19th century, this was still a kind of possibility. So he wrote to the Secretary of State, whose uh, clerk wrote back to him, asking for verification of his citizenship before issuing the passport. Uh, this was uh, a more or less novel requirement at that point, which had emerged in the uh, antebellum period. Um, 
the, the letter that Melville writes back is, is kind of hilarious because it, it shows his impatience with the whole bureaucratic rigmarole. Um, but he was fortunate enough to have a brother who was a barrister, a lawyer, and could vouch for his citizenship and did so in an affidavit that was sent along to uh, the Secretary of, Secretary of State's office, which replied with the passport that he required just in time for him to travel. So that little episode tells us something about the personality of, of uh, Herman Melville, I suppose, but it also tells us something about um, the relative ease with which a person of a certain station or, or sort of certain racial profile in uh, mid-19th century America could affirm their citizenship and gain a document that uh, further affirmed that citizenship. And this contrasts, as you mentioned, with the story of Frederick Douglass, who actually made his escape from slavery using a document not unlike a passport, a seaman's pass. Uh, and this is a remarkable scene in American history, really. I think it has a, a much broader significance. He uh, dressed himself as a sailor. He adopted the mannerisms and speech of a sailor as he was able to mimic them from his encounters with sailors and boarded a train north to escape from slavery had an encounter with a conductor on the train who asked for his papers and was able um, by the skin of his teeth to convince the conductor that they were authentic and that there was no reason to waylay him. And he ended up uh, a free man, escaped from slavery. But he wasn't able to attain an official U.S. passport for many years later. Now, he traveled internationally. and He took his emancipationist cause to Great Britain and Ireland um, and during one of those trips, while he was overseas on a speaking tour, he decided he wanted to go to France. He had long dreamed of going to France, but not too long before he um, had decided to go to France, there was an assassination attempt on Napoleon III, which had ratcheted up passport controls uh, for those entering into France. So. Douglas felt compelled to get a passport. He appealed to the U.S. minister in Great Britain uh, when George M. Dallas, after whom many locations in the U.S. are named. Um, but the minister refused him a passport on the grounds that Douglas was not a U.S. citizen. This was in 1859, just two years after the Dred Scott decision had barred uh, people of African descent, whether free or enslaved, from recognition as citizens. And it seems that Dallas was only too happy to sort of carry out the implications of that ruling. Then in 1886, so 27 years later, uh, Douglas was preparing for another trip abroad, this time on his uh, honeymoon with his second wife. And he was able to go to the passport office in Washington, D.C., and to vouch for his own citizenship and to sign for himself without need of an affidavit. His, his fame by that point was no doubt helpful in the bargain. But he um, tells this story, and as he tells the story in his uh, memoir, he reflects back on the earlier incident with George M. Dallas in Great Britain and reflects that while uh, Dallas was dead, and someday Douglas would be, and there would both be anonymous at some point, Douglas underestimating his own importance, I suppose, um, that now he had finally been recognized as a U.S. citizen. So the passport served that very important function. It was useful for travel, and it enabled him to have the kinds of you know, ease of access and freedom of movement that uh, Herman Melville had desired earlier. But more important for him was the function of the document as recognition for his citizenship. And then even more touching, I suppose, after he tells the story of attaining the passport, he reflects back on, on the wonderlust that he had nurtured, even as a young man still enslaved. So this, this young man living in bondage, but literate, able to read, hearing stories from sailors and others who had traveled, had this great desire to see the world, which was, of course, entirely closed off to him as an enslaved person, but on the verge of his 70th birthday, 
1986, he was able to use this new passport and to go to Europe to conduct this grand tour to see much of the continent and even to go across the Mediterranean to, to Egypt and um, see the pyramids and so forth. Um, but the remarkable thing then is that after he's attained that document and recognized its importance for his citizenship, he sort of leaves it out of the story and he turns his attention to the, to the travels that he had so long desired to, to conduct. You also move in and talk specifically about the gender politics of the passport as a document um, when you talk about James Joyce and the family passport um, that you include an image of it from 1915 and it becomes very clear in terms of what those politics look like, particularly James Joyce having his own photo as the head of household and then his wife and children having a, a photo together. And I think for me as a, as a media study scholar, looking at specifically how photography really did make passports an even more powerful tool for state surveillance. Um, how do you think that that really shifted from, you know, when it was just descriptions where they just had to write down what their height was versus when the, the photograph really kind of took over and said, this is what this person looks like and what that kind of politicization of someone's look and the color of their skin and their gender, et cetera, and what that really did to the history of the passport and how we, we got to where we are at today. Well, I think it certainly shifted the, the expectations for the document, that it could provide a sort of objective representation of the holder, that those earlier descriptions um, that were you know, part of the document for about a century prior to what we're talking about here with James Joyce and his document, which was acquired during the First World War, were largely subjective. The, the governments involved would dictate the categories for um, description, uh, features of the face, height, and so forth. But the individual, in almost all cases, was the one to fill out the document. So it was their self-assessment, as subjective as that may be, that was presented in the passport. Of course, they needed to match that description when they arrived at border crossings. So there was incentive to make the description accurate, whatever that might mean when we're translating physical features into linguistic descriptors. Um, but when the passport photo emerges during the First World War, um, in one of the principal motives for its emergence, for its inclusion in the passport document is that um, in an age of uh, espionage and sabotage, the passport had been abused to allow passage of uh, you know, foreign nationals across state lines to engage in those activities, espionage and sabotage. So the photograph was one means to try to limit or perhaps uh, deny that kind of access. Um, so the, the photograph has this kind of military uh, martial function in some sense. But as you say, it also has these other kinds of significance. So the passport you've referred to, the James Joyce document, pictures Joyce as the head of household um, in one photograph, and then his wife and two children, the rest of the family are pictured in another photograph. Now the convention was, and this was the case for many years prior and for a number of years after, that the husband and father would be the one to have the passport and his wife and children would travel on his passport. They didn't have their own documents. So their freedom of movement was restricted by his presence and um, what's there's a number of remarkable things about the the Joyce passport um, that is clearly indicated this split between the head of household the the sort of patriarch and the rest of the family. It's also interesting that uh, for the purposes of that document, at any rate, Joyce indicated that he and his wife Nora were indeed married. I say wife, but they weren't actually married until a number of years later. But it was expedient uh, at the time in the midst of this conflict to get a document that would allow them to leave behind the remnants of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Empire in Trieste and move to Zurich, this 
neutral domain where, where Joyce would write Ulysses. So they, they fudged things a bit and said that they were indeed married so they could get a single document that would serve this function and not have questions about you know, whose children are these and why is this woman who's not your wife traveling with you and so on and so forth. So um, even if the document became more objective in a sense because the photograph, there were still uh, ways to sort of skirt uh, the, the authority of the document with these uh, convenient little lies. And one of the things you mentioned is like the linguistic aspect of the passport, which you include a really funny <laughs> of what happened to Ernest Hemingway when, you know, he first set out to, he was call, called himself a journalist when he first, uh, I think, went to um, sailed off to Paris. And then he found himself in this kind of no man's land because by the time that he was looking for uh you know, the at a situation where he was looking had a passport that they had um, interpreted what he had written as writer as waiter, which completely flipped his professional status and and kind of talks about this notion of the weight that is given to an author or writer versus a waiter. Yeah, that that is one of the more humorous episodes in the book, and. Um... One that I takes down Ernest Hemingway, you know, a, a notch or two, which is probably just as well. Um, it does, yes. And, you know, and, and with the, the help of the passport regime, as it were. So you had to sort of fill out some of the details there. Um, so this is 1931, I believe. Um, so about a decade after the uh, passport regime, as we know it, had emerged. And Hemingway had applied for a new passport and, you know, in his hurry, not unlike Melville some years before, he scrawled out his application and apparently did it messily enough that the clerk who was tasked with translating the information there into the passport had mistaken writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, for waiter, W-A-I-T-E-R. And um, you can imagine Hemingway with his ego was not too happy about this and wrote a rather indignant missive back to the passport office. You know, by now he was the author of The Sun Also Rises and A Farewell to Arms. He was you know, a prominent figure. He had attained the status of author that he had uh, sought after for, for many years at that point. And he wasn't going to have a um, you know, mere passport clerk take that away from him. So uh, he, he wrote back um, and the gist is that he said, my true occupation is that of writer or author in all caps, um, rather than waiter. Now, the ironic thing, though, um, it, and you know, he had done this. He s- said, in, ostensibly, that you know it would make his um, travels more difficult if he were just a lowly restaurant employee rather than a recognized, you know, man of letters. But there are instances where, say, journalists uh, will travel or have traveled when uh, occupation was. A requirement of the passport application and under other occupations because they didn't want to be recognized as someone who could be reporting back from, you know, an enemy country or North Korea or, you know, the Middle East or what have you. So um, th- there are any number of interesting anecdotes about how the profession of the individual is linked into the passport document and how that can be manipulated for certain ends. And as you move into the next chapter where you talk about the expelled and the stateless, that's where I think some of that gets certainly darker when we think about, you know, the the, the rise of, of Hitler and uh, Nazi Germany with the example of like Mark Chagall and how his name, his real name versus his artist name and how that actually put him really in a in a dangerous space. Yeah, Chagall's story is, is a fascinating one um, and really kind of indicative of uh, some of the major turmoils of the 20th century. So, you know, he was a Russian artist who um, began his uh, career really in, in Paris. That's where he had his first success. But on the eve of the First World War, he went back to Russia to marry his longtime sweetheart there, but became trapped as it were, behind enemy lines when the First World War broke out and he was unable to attain a passport to return home. He had to wait until after the First World War, until I think it was 1922, 
to get a passport. But by that time, Russia, in the wake of the Russian Revolution, was strictly limiting immigration. So using that passport, going back to Paris to resume his career in more hospitable surroundings, meant that he was rendered stateless. Um, his Russian citizenship was canceled. So to travel after that, he received what was known as a Nansen passport. These play a fairly important role in the story that I tell in the book, named after Friedhof Nansen, the uh, statesman. He was the um, head of uh, refugee issues for the League of Nations. He created this document, which was meant to help those who had been rendered stateless um, across Europe because of the uh, aftermath of the First World War. There were uh, hundreds and thousands of stateless people across Europe, and in many cases, they had no documentation to allow them to move across uh, national borders or to settle in new places. So these documents were created. Um, other figures, um, another prominent figure um, to have such a document was uh, Vladimir Nabokov. So they play an important role in the, in the lives and careers of a number of uh, prominent artists and intellectuals during this period. Eventually, uh, Chagall was naturalized as a French citizen. But then the next war came around with the German occupation of France. Uh, Chagall was moved from Paris into the, the Vichy region, actually. Um, but this was a period when anti-Semitic laws were being instituted and French Jews were being rounded up by the Gestapo. Um, and during this period, uh, he was again stripped of his citizenship, this time of his French citizenship, and in danger of being rounded up by the Gestapo himself. So he ended up on the doorstep of Varian Fry, uh, an American activist who had come to France to help uh, refugees from Nazi Germany, from across Europe who were fleeing the Nazi menace. And he actually reached out to Chagall on a number of occasions trying to help him make his uh, safe transit to the U.S., Chagall, because of his earlier displacements, um, if for no other reason, was kind of reluctant to move on yet again, but he was eventually convinced to do so. And uh, Fry was able to get him the requisite documents, a U.S. visa, and so on and so forth, so that he could make his way to New York and be safe from the war. Now, Fry went on to save more than 3,000 individuals through similar means. And um, as far as the cultural history of the passport is concerned, uh, that's a particularly important episode. It's a particularly important episode for the history of the 20th century in many ways. But because of the individuals that Fry had targeted, artists and intellectuals, mostly of German Jewish origin, but others who were under threat of the Nazi menace, uh, he saved an entire generation of folks, um, Hannah Arendt being another one who would go on to do important things in the U.S., including writing in penetrating ways about the plight of the stateless and the rise of totalitarianism in Europe. So Fry managed to save uh, a cultural legacy that would have likely perished if it wasn't for his intervention. And in that same chapter, it's, it's such a fascinating, really dark history and I, I, I had to read it a couple times when you talked about uh, James Joyce and how James Joyce all of a sudden became like an enemy alien um, because he had tried to, like he was wanting to flee with his family to, to Switzerland and somehow his visa was denied because they had thought he was Jewish based on his character, Leopold Bloom from yes, the leases, yes. which... It's my, it's my, it's like mind boggling. I, I literally had to read that a couple of times going, what, is this real? So, and then of course, looking at the Frankfurt school and those who made it and Walter Benjamin, who did not, which is such a tragic history of, of what was happening with migrants moving during World War II. Yeah. So the, there's, there's a couple of things to unpack there. There's, there's this sort of second chapter, as it were, in the Joyce passport saga, which includes this humorous, or it would be humorous if it wasn't in such a, a dark setting, 
detailed that when he had applied for a French exit visa to go back to Zurich to wait out this world war, he was denied apparently because the uh, visa officials had confused him with the protagonist of his novel, Ulysses, Leopold Bloom, who was, of course, famously Jewish. So he had that um, mark against him. And he also had uh, the fact that he was still carrying a British passport at the time, right? Uh, a stated enemy of uh, the Germans. And uh, he insisted on maintaining that British passport even though he was offered an Irish passport because, and this was his sort of perverse logic given the circumstances, he said that he would not accept in wartime what he had refused in peacetime. So his, his alienation from his homeland was such that he didn't want this Irish documentation affirming his Irish citizenship, now a free nation as it had not been when he initially left. It had been part of the British Empire until... 1921-22, but um, none of that was enough to get Joyce to to yield. He did eventually eventually get the documents needed and made his way to Zurich, but only shortly before his his death, he he perished in, in Zurich not long after that. Um, and then yes, the Frankfurt School Benjamin story is is a very well known one, I suppose, um, and. It provides an interesting contrast to that of Chagall and even Hannah Arendt. So Hannah Arendt did receive Varian Fry's help, but only after um, appeals to um, some of Fry's helpers who were um, old friends of uh, Hannah Arendt's husband. So the, she was not yet prominent enough, famous enough to have appeared on Varian Fry's list of um, those he was seeking visas or seeking to help escape Europe. It was only through this personal connection that she was able to get his attention and to get the kind of assistance that she needed. Benjamin was similarly uh, unrecognized or underrecognized at the time and didn't receive the kind of help that he might have from a figure like Varian Fry. And his story is is a tragic one, having tried to escape over the Pyrenees, being stopped at the Spanish border and believing that he was in imminent danger of arrest by the Gestapo, taking his own life, only to uh, have this sort of historical irony that the border was reopened the very next day and he would have been able to carry on safely across France and eventually to Portugal and then taking a ship to the U.S. as was the normal route for escapees. Um, and that's one of the more heartrending elements of, of this entire book, in some sense, is that the fate of those uh, refugees in the Second World War, but in more recent uh, epochs as well, who don't have the right documents, who seek certain documents so that they can not just thrive, but survive. And because of the um, contingencies of the passport system don't get the documents in time, don't get the right visas that they need to cross certain borders and so forth. And their lives are either profoundly altered or ended because of those chance elements. Um, and that's probably nowhere more evident than in the, the story of, of Benjamin and the sort of um, bad luck that he had, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, it's really a, a very tragic um, circumstance in that he that he found himself, yeah, and, and just really uh, the, the bad luck. Just the next day having, um, if he had just waited one more day, but that's, um, it's a, a great mind like lost too soon because I can only imagine what, um, if he had been able to escape the United States, the, the changes or what we would have gained in that, um, in that perspective from a mind like his, um, you get, you move on to talking about, uh, some more contemporary in the next chapter where you talk about migrants and Marxists, and then you talk about the alien and the indigenous. And there's a lot of, there's really some great documentaries out there that talk about uh, migration and the refugee crisis. And you talk about Ai Weiwei's Human Flow from 2017, which is a great uh, documentary that talks about the global refugee crisis. 
And um, can you talk a little bit, and you mentioned a lot of different contemporary artists and, and how they're dealing with this from even an artistic perspective, and which is kind of this fusion with activism. Can you talk a little bit more about what do you think that um, these artists such as Ai Weiwei are really kind of contributing to that discourse of the passport as well as border crossings and what it really means to have these kind of politicizing of this documentation and how that really relates to the human condition and refugee migration. Yeah, and, and the the scene in, in Ai Weiwei's uh, documentary that is in some ways uh, contiguous with the stories I've just been telling uh, demonstrates again the this, this sort of cruelty of the modern passport system. So he's in a refugee camp on the Greek Macedonian border, um, and you know, sort of recording the quotidian uh, events of refugee life. And he has an encounter with a Syrian refugee, in in his very sort of jovial way. They they sort of mimic the the passport ritual, which we've referred to. So rather than um, inspecting the Syrian's passport, they exchange passports and they pretend at least for a moment that they've exchanged identities so that Ai Weiwei now is going to be living in a tent in the refugee camp and the Syrian refugee can go back to Berlin and Ai Weiwei's massive studio and so forth, um, which just shows in this sort of visceral way how contingent, how random, how, how inhumane in some sense the passport regime is if only they could exchange their identities as easily as they've exchanged these documents. Um, and it's, it's a touching moment. Uh, some have seen it as even a bit cruel on Ai Weiwei's part to sort of play with this idea. But if, if you know Ai Weiwei's own history of persecution, at the hands of, of the Chinese government, which goes all the way back to the story of his father, um, who was harshly persecuted uh, as well. I see it more as a gesture of solidarity from an artist to a migrant that um, does the work of pointing up these cruelties. So this uh, you know, film that's been shown on Amazon Prime, widely distributed, widely discussed, and it draws attention to the refugee crisis at large, but to these elements of the crisis, which bear on the passport. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, many of the issues that sort of weigh most heavily on us as a global community today, whether we're talking about the pandemic and its aftermath or the global refugee crises that continue on, um, the passport plays a role in all of them. The passport is a place where the personal and the political collide, the personal and that this is a document that belongs to the individual traveler that indicates their personal details, that records their movements, that serves even as a kind of travel narrative or memoir insofar as those visa stamps and so forth chart out their movements around the globe. Um, but because of the, the seal on the cover and the name of the nation and so forth, it binds them to a country and it binds them to a particular status in the international community, determines where they can go. Um, where they cannot go, um, you know, holds this sort of outsized importance. That little book, as precious as it may be, also holds this kind of dire significance for many whose passports don't have the same kind of power as, say, a U.S. passport or a German passport, some of the more powerful passports that allow for visa-free travel to different nations um, much more readily than a Syrian passport or an Afghani passport, what have you. And in your epilogue, you talk about good passports and bad passports, as you were just mentioning, and talk about this really kind of um, powerful performance that really brings that um, into an artistic space. Would you like to talk a little bit more about what that performance is and how that kind of relates, again, from an artistic standpoint, but what is a very real uh, thing that's happening around the world? Yeah, so I, I borrow the title of the epilogue just as I borrowed the title of the introduction from a particular 
um, source, in this case, Helena Waldman's dance piece called Good Passports, Bad Passports. So one of the things that indicates is just how sort of widespread and across uh, you know, so many genres and disciplines this concern with the passport is. She created this striking dance piece, which you, folks can see a trailer on, on YouTube if they want to take a peek at it just to get a sense of just how powerful it is, that um, was inspired by her experience of traveling internationally with dance companies um, and having her German passport allow her easy transit across borders through customs and immigration uh, controls, while others with less powerful passports were waylaid, questioned, sometimes denied entry and so forth, or demanded additional visas in order to cross a border. So that's the, the basic binary of the title of that dance piece is good passports, bad passports. And she, in this sort of um, remarkable way, has her uh, performers, one set who are acrobats and one set who are more classically trained modern dancers, perform as if they were part of two national communities in these sort of antagonistic ways that often come to define our international relations. And then at the end of the piece, this just striking scene where a wall of bodies, which are made up of, of volunteers who participate in the production wherever it travels, um, a wall of bodies splits the stage and separates these two antagonistic groups, but then it begins to rotate as the groups press on the wall, spinning faster and faster until eventually the, the center cannot hold to allude to my uh, WB Yeats. Um, and the, the wall breaks apart and then the um, performers who had been in these opposing roles and even the members of this uh, wall sort of unite at the front of the stage to give us an image of something um, beyond national international antagonism, beyond border walls, beyond these kinds of boundaries that we have drawn more or less arbitrarily between nations during the course of um, modern history to at least imagine some other way of being in the world. And this, this builds on your, your earlier question. What can artists do in the face of these things? Well, they can draw our attention to these dilemmas as Waldman does. But they, more than that, I think they can generate a kind of emotional response, kind of visceral response to this. And um, you know, through the use of human movement in these dramatic ways, that production uh, does just that. It really produces a visceral response from the audience. And that might be enough to begin changing how people think. I agree. And I'm very happy to see that, that artists of so many different uh, mediums are really kind of talking about this uh, on a global scale, because it really is uh, an important thing to, to talk about because we so often, um, like the U.S. government specifically, doesn't really know what to do with with migrants and with refugees. So it kind of remains an, on, an ongoing issue and something to talk about. Um, so as we kind of wrap up this conversation, I, I do... I, I absolutely loved your book and I, and I recommend it to anyone to, to pick it up and read it because it's, it's super interesting and relevant. Uh, we will, Patrick will be back with us um, to talk about Unaccompanied Traveler, the writings of Kathleen M. Murphy, which I'm very excited to talk to you about for the next uh, episode. Um, I don't know if you want to give our listeners a, a sneak preview of that um, book. Sure, I'd be happy to. So Kathleen M. Murphy was actually a contemporary of James Joyce's. She went to University College Dublin at the very same time that he did, end of the 19th century. Um, but her opportunities as an Irish woman were considerably less than, than his would have been. But eventually, by the 1920s and 30s, she began to travel internationally. And she did so in a remarkable way that was um, almost unique among her uh, women contemporaries. Sometimes I joke that uh, Indiana Jones wishes he was Kathleen M. Murphy for the adventures that she had. Um, but then the Second World War put an end to that. Of course, international travel became all but impossible. 
After the war, she began to write about these experiences and published uh, a series of travelogues in this uh, Catholic annual, Capuchin annual that was published in Dublin, but had circulation in the UK and the US uh, and garnered a certain amount of recognition for that, but she's been almost entirely forgotten since her death in the early 1960s. So um, I provide a, a detailed biography of her, I contextualize her work, and then the rest of the book is a collection of these travelogues, which um, are amusing or harrowing, um, frightening, um, but always interesting. And uh, I, I hope that I will gain her a new following uh, many years after her death now. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to, to having that chat with you next time. Um, so thank you again for joining us, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Marcy.